Good morning. You can be seated. It's a great honor to get to be here with you this morning. I uh, want to say a special thank you to uh, Pastors uh, Matt and Heather and Pastors Mike and Jennifer. Thank you for having me. I also want to honor my mother and father, Dr. Johnny and Betty Moffitt, who are here uh, later this year. They're going to celebrate 52 years of marriage to one another. Among all the other things that they've done, I really appreciate that example. So can we just honor them for just a moment? Thank you, my wife, Regina, sends her uh, greetings, and my son, Noah, they were not able to be here with me this weekend, but they send their greetings and have a lot of dear friends here in this house, and just, again, really appreciate the opportunity to get to, to share with you today. In Matthew uh, uh, 28, 18, we'll start there, the Lord said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth, as we just heard a fantastic word from uh, Pastor Matt establishing the authority of Jesus himself. He says, all authority has been given to me. Then in the very next verse, verse 19, he says, now you go and make disciples of all nations. And if you've been in ministry more than about 10 minutes, you realize that making disciples is quite the challenge, isn't it? To actually instill into somebody the ideas that we just discussed, moving somebody from the priorities of this world into the priorities of the kingdom of God is no easy task, amen? So how do we do that? I want to talk to you today from a reformed perspective of being a disciple maker. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn back to the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers, and we're going to look in chapter 27 in the book of Numbers. And I'm going to invite you to stand to read the word, and we're going to read from verses 12 down to verses 23. And uh, I have the same 30 minutes that Pastor Matt had, although I am not the pastor in this house, and uh, so I will do my best to, re to return a few minutes back to us, amen? All right, let's pick up here Matthew 27 and verse 12. It says, now the Lord said to Moses, go up into Mount Abram and see the land which I have given to the children of Israel, and when you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people as Aaron, your brothers, was gathered. For in the wilderness of Zen, during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my command to hallow me at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah at Kadesh in the wilderness of Zen. Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation who may go out before them and go in before them, who may lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may, be like, may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun with you, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation, and inaugurate him in their sight. And you shall give some of your authority to him, that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. He shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire before the Lord for him by the judgment of the Urim. At his word, they shall go out, and at his word, they shall come in, he and all the children of Israel with him, all the congregation. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation, and he laid his hands on him and inaugurated him just as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses. Let's pray. Lord, we love you so much. God, we appreciate your word that you have given us. 
And I pray that you would guide us so that we would live faithfully in our lives according to your word. You have commanded us, God, to make disciples. And we ask that you would help us to follow your example and the guidance that you give us so that we would be good and faithful disciple makers. We love you and we appreciate you and we give you the glory for our lives in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. I'm gonna give you three quick general points and a few subpoints underneath. First point to being a disciple maker is this. To be a disciple maker, you must first be a disciple yourself. If you're going to make disciples, you yourself must be a disciple. Moses, in given the commands of the Lord to go and look at the nation, the land in which they would possess that he himself were not going to participate in, he was envisioning this for the people who would come behind him. He makes an incredible prayer. And the first thing he says is, Lord, place someone over the congregation who may go out and come in, who knows how to go out himself and come in. What is he saying? He's saying, place somebody over the congregation who knows how to go out into the world, who knows how to conduct himself, who knows how to carry himself as a disciple, who can conduct himself in the marketplace and in the business and even make warfare against the enemy on behalf of the kingdom of God, on behalf of the nation of Israel, representing the Lord well in public, someone who knows how to go out and also knows how to come into the presence of the Lord himself. Not in, 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 in guidance or direction of anybody else, but someone who himself is a disciple. So what does it mean to be a disciple? If you are a disciple, it means that you are following somebody. So my question for us as ministers, as missionaries, and in, as pastors, and as leaders is, who is the authority that is in your life? Who is it that you are allowing to speak into your life to say, no, don't go plant the church. No, don't lead the missions trip. No, don't start the new endeavor. No, don't start the new effort. You're not ready for that. You're not prepared for that. Do any of us in this room have someone in our life who is in some way an authority who can bring discipline into our lives when it's necessary? So often we think that when we are called into the ministry and we finally gain a title of pastor or missionary, that all of a sudden we are excluded from the reality of the setting of discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple? These are the biblical examples that we see in Moses. First of all, we keep the faith. It says in verse 12 and 13, See the land which I have given to the children of Israel, and when you see it, you shall be gathered to your people. Now, this is a challenge. Moses spent his life, the better part of his ministry, leading the nation of Israel to a promised land, and at the end, he realized I'm not going in. I'm envisioning something for the generations that are going to come behind me. The reality is, is that there are dreams and visions and, and faith that you will have for the next generation that you will not enter into in your own lifetime. The question of a disciple is, are you still willing to keep the faith even if it doesn't apply to you? Are you willing to keep the faith for something better to come for the next generation? Are you thinking about it being well in your own time period? Or are you thinking about how are your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren and your great-great-grandchildren who you're never going to meet and they might even not know your name? How it is that they're going to walk in faithfulness to the Lord? Are you doing things today that help uh, uh, 
pave a path for them, for the next generation? Are you keeping the faith as, an, as a disciple? Next, what do disciples do? Improve upon their failures. Here the Lord says to Moses, For in the wilderness of Zin, during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against me. How did Moses respond when the Lord told him, Go on to the mountain and look at the land that you will not possess? He didn't argue with the Lord anymore. He argued with him in the wilderness. But somewhere from the wilderness to the end of his life, he learned to stop arguing with the Lord. It says, I wish that you were not like a mule having to be led around by bit and bridle all the time. But that at some point in times in our life as a disciple, we learn to be willingly submitted to the Lord, quickly surrendering to him so that he doesn't have to always pull our head to the left and to the right. Additionally, we see as a disciple that Moses spent his time in prayer. In verse 15, it says, Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Guys, we need to pray to God for direction, not simply for our next sermon. And as I said before, if we're going to be disciple makers, we must first of all be disciples. If we desire for others to follow us, then we must model our own instructions by following someone else. If we ask people to submit to our authority in their lives, we must model this by submitting to other authority in our own lives. How many of us in the room, and we don't have to do a show of hands, are pastors or missionaries without a pastor? How many of us don't have someone who can call us and say, no, that's not what you need to be doing right now? I know far too many ministers in, in, in the, the variety of things that the Lord has opened up doors for my wife and I a part of it involves coaching missionaries and pastors. And I run into far too many full-time ministers who find themselves in crisis with no one in their lives, no, no authority in their life to be able to speak into their life. I've lived that way for many years of my own life. I'm now an employee at a church. My pastor has become my boss. He can tell me to uh, lead a Bible study or stack chairs at his uh, pleasure. And I find it to be very healthy and very safe that when you find yourself in crisis, which you will, whether you have authority in your life or not, but to have someone in your life who is an authority who can speak into your life puts you into a safer, more healthy position. To be a disciple maker, you must first be a disciple. We have to practice the basics. My mom taught me a song when I was just a boy that sings, read your Bible Pray every day and you'll grow, grow, grow. And if we'll stick to the basics, even as we grow in influence, we'll find ourselves in a safer position. Second, we see in Moses' prayer that to be a disciple maker, you must become a better leader. He prays, Lord, give them somebody who themselves know how, knows how to go out and come in and then in verse 17, it says, who may lead them out and bring them in. Now, how do you know if you're a good leader? It's a very simple answer. You look around and you see if anyone is following you. If people are following you, then you're a leader. If they're not following you, then you're not leading. You've heard it said, if you're leading people and no one's following, you're just taking a walk because no one is there. No one is with you. But if people are responding to your leadership, if you're giving direction and instruction and they're responding to that, then you're leading. 
and you must work on improving the quality of your leadership. Now, I get it over the last two or three decades, we've taken uh, the ideology in our modern church of equating leadership with salvation. Those are two very different things. But if you're going to influence other people, then you yourself must take responsibility for the quality of your leadership. So what does the Bible say about leadership? Even in the passage that we're reading today, number one, lay your hands on them. Take Joshua, the son of Nun, with you, a man in whom is the spirit, and lay your hands on him. Verse 18, making disciples is not merely an intellectual process, it's a spiritual impartation. You have to ask yourself, when was the last time with the people that you're working to develop as disciples that you went and sat with them and simply laid your hands on them and prayed for them? And you imparted some of the spirit that was in you into them. It's one thing to try to train someone and teach someone and, and, and even model an example for someone. But if we think that it's not a supernatural process, we're kidding ourselves. Lay your hands on them. Mothers and fathers, lay your hands on your children and pray for them. Like in the morning and in the night and in the middle of the day and all the time, lay your hands on them and bless them and pray for them. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> honor them publicly. This is how you become a better leader. You honor the people that you're leading publicly. Verse 19, set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation and inaugurate him in their sight. Listen, honoring the people that you're leading with backhanded compliments. Well, if I could just get these people to come along. The joke that we've all heard, well, the church would be so fantastic if it wasn't full of people. Which people? You people. You're the people. You're talking to the people and telling them it would just be better if they weren't here. What if instead we actually said nice things about people? If one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is kindness, what if we were actually kind? What if we said... Matt Bell, Mike Bell, Jennifer, Heather, the whole Christ is King team, good job. Has this not been a good conference? Come on, guys, practice for just a minute. Good job, guys. Now, I don't have to qualify that with a comical uh, relief. I don't have to qualify that with an insult on the other side. I don't have to say, well, good job, but, you know, I mean the sound guys, you know? We love the sound guys. Just honor them publicly. Just tell them what a good job that they're doing in front of other people. Tell other people what a good job they're doing where they can hear you. Tell other people what a good job they're doing even when they can't hear you. Honor them publicly. The, other, the, the, the next step in growing your own leadership is you allow them to lead. Verse 21, it says, At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in. We are at our church in, in uh, Wesley Chapel in the Tampa, Florida area. We're getting ready to have our first missions conference. So I'm learning. I'm learning. Appreciate that. Our church has been there 23 years. I became the missions director about two years ago. We're getting ready to have our first missions conference. I'm very excited about it. And uh, one of our team members is also my son, and he's 14. And we need to create some merch. We need to create some media. We're talking about T-shirts and what the brochures and what the name tags are going to look like. 
And uh, so Noah has some ideas, so I put him in charge of the media. You know, I'm letting him lead. And what he comes up with, that's what we're going to do. And I'm not going to say to him, well, you should do it how dad would do it. I'm not very good at graphic design anyway, and he's very good. But sometimes we put people in a place of leadership, and then we come along behind them and beside them and say, well, I know I put you in a place of leadership, but I want you to lead it exactly like this. You can lead as long as you lead it like this. And we forget that there was somebody down the path in our own life who gave us an opportunity to lead, who gave us an opportunity to step out a little bit and make some mistakes, do some things good and, 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 and maybe make some errors. And we hold on so tightly to leadership that we don't allow other people to lead. But what I really want us to focus on in the balance of my time is this. Because we've had plenty of teachings on leadership I know to whom I am speaking. I know that you are not novices at following in the basics of Christ. But this third part of Moses' prayer is what really captures me. And I would say it this way, that to be a disciple maker, we need to purge our lives of vanity. It says in verse 17 that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. In my opinion, the sin of vanity is probably the greatest opposition to us making disciples. Because we forget that it's about the congregation and the care of the congregation, and we begin to think that making disciples is about ourselves. Now, I have some good news for you today, and that's this. In all of my observations, we really only fight against the battle of vanity at one season of our life. So once you resolve the issue, you can move on. There's really only one season of life in which you fight the battle of vanity. It is the season while you are breathing. So when you're breathing, only in that time period will you fight the battle of vanity. Once you stop breathing, the battle will be over. It's the only time. That's the good news. Now, the bad news is that the battle against vanity will often intensify as you gain more victory. You gain victory over vanity, and the, the spirit of vanity against you seems to fight harder. Oftentimes, the battle seems to intensify. And unfortunately, nobody ever stands up in the pulpit and talks about vanity, certainly not about themselves being vain. But it happens. Here's the exchange. This is nice. The more victory you gain over vanity, the more influence you gain with other people. As you gain victory over vanity, you will gain more influence with other people. And it's probably not the type of influence that you're looking for. It's not stage and spotlight influence. It's what I call kitchen influence. Kitchen influence is very different than spotlight influence. When you start out in ministry, usually what people are looking for is spotlight influence. Pastor, can I come preach at your church? I'd like for you to give me an offering, and I'd like for everybody to know how good of a preacher I am. We don't say the second part, and sometimes we're not even brave enough to say the first part. And what happens is, is that as you begin to crucify the vanity part of your flesh, the focus of the spotlight becomes less, and more people invite you not into the spotlight, but they'll invite you into the kitchen, into conversations that don't go into your newsletter, into conversations that don't go on a brochure, into conversations that don't, that don't get spoken anywhere else, that nobody else knows about because you're not a threat to them anymore. 
You're not trying to take a place from someone anymore. Your agendas become crucified because the, the vanity of flesh becomes crucified with Christ. Moses prays, give them a person like this. Let this be the disciple maker like this so that the people, the people, not Moses, he didn't pray, Lord, give them somebody who knows how to go out and come in and lead the people out and in so that they'll remember me when I'm gone, so that my legacy will remain, so that when I'm not here, they'll still say, well, this was the land that Moses led us to. I want to give a, a, a point of encouragement for those of you who are a little bit further down the path. Now, I'm still a young man. I only turned 50 this year, so I'm not even halfway through my life yet. You could do the math. But for those of you who've been here a little bit longer, let me say that your legacy is not being built in the last years of your life. But let me assure you that your legacy has been built over the last many decades of your life, and it is certain and it is sure because you have paved a way for many of us who are following in your footsteps. There are many of us who only know the path because we can see the impression in the sand that was left by those who went before us. And I say good on you and I appreciate you for walking a faithful path for those of us coming behind you to follow. As you crucify the vanity in your life, you gain influence. So how do you crucify vanity in your life? It's not easy. First, I would say to be publicly committed to your disciples. It says in verse 20, and you shall give some of your authority to them that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. Man, handing over authority to people that you don't even know if you like them, much less trust them, and they're your disciples can be challenging. But handing over authority publicly, legitimately affirming their place in the ministry, legitimately affirming their place in the kingdom, in front of other people, saying, I'm going to put my name and my reputation on you because you're my disciple and I believe you're following Christ and you're doing the best you can and I'm going to walk alongside with you and I'm going to be publicly committed to you. It's a great way to crucify the vanity in your own life because we all get the fear, right? What if they do a horrible job in front of everyone to see and my name is attached to them? But it's not, about, it's not about the reputation that you're establishing. It's about following the Lord. Next, I would say, let God be their judge, not you. It says in verse 21, he shall stand before Eleazar the priest who shall inquire before the Lord for him by the judgment of the Urim. Man, letting God be the judge of those that we are discipling can be challenging. Because first of all, I think that we want to be their judge. We want to be the ones who decide when they're ready or when they're not ready. Right? Lord, I know you're wanting to give them authority, but I don't approve. I don't think it's time for them. We're really just going to mess them up. And really, I don't want to share any of my authority with them at this point anyway. That can be quite the challenge that we become the judge. But furthermore than that, I think that we respond sometimes as parents in that we try to step between the people, the, the spiritual children that we have, and the fire of the Holy Spirit. 
Because we know how it feels to be tested by the Holy Spirit. It's very uncomfortable. In fact, it can actually be painful. And so sometimes we step between the spiritual child that we're raising up and the fire of the Holy Spirit and we'd rather shield them. Oh God, don't test them. Don't burn up the chaff in their life and, 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 and fortify the, the, the steel of their faith. When the Lord says, you need to step out of the way, it's not your place to judge them. Let them stand before the Urim themselves. Let them stand before the fire of the Holy Spirit themselves. What if their faith crumbles? It'll be just like when your faith crumbled and the Lord will lift you up and the fire of the Holy Spirit as it burned away the chaff in your life will burn away the chaff in their life. And as it sustained the strength and the steel of your faith, it will sustain and strengthen the steel of their faith. You have to allow your spiritual children eventually to stand on their own faith. There was a point in time when my father's faith and my mother's faith became my faith. And I've told my own son... I hope that you love me for the rest of your life. I hope that you love your mother for the rest of your life. But more importantly than that, my number one job as your father is to help you fall in love with Jesus. Even if you come to a place in your life where you don't love me, I hope that you love Jesus for the rest of your life. He has to learn to stand in his own faith. Because I am not his judge. The Lord is his judge. And lastly, to crucify the vanity in our own lives, I would say this, and that's don't quit. In verse 22, it says, so Moses did as the Lord commanded him. Don't give up. Don't quit. Even when the people that you are investing your life in, when they betray you, when they turn on you, when they discredit you, when they fail, when they lie, when they cheat, when they do all of the things that disappoint you, don't quit, don't give up. Not even out of your commitment to them, but out of your commitment to the Lord. Be obedient to what the Lord commands you. Let me remind you that the process of discipleship takes time. And the process of discipleship takes patience. Don't give up on the people that God has placed in your hands. They are a precious gift to you. And you have them only for a short window of time. One lifetime is not a very long time. So don't quit on them. Amen? Amen. Let's do this. I have four and a half minutes. I'm going to surrender three minutes of my time back. So for the next minute and a half, will you just turn to the person next to you and if they'll let you, just lay your hands on them, especially parents with your children, lay your hands on them for just a moment. Husbands and wives, lay your hands on one another. Lay your hands on them for just a minute. Can we just pray for one another for just a moment? Is that all right? Lord, we love you so much. We pray in the name of Jesus that you would take the things that you've taught us, each one of us individually, from your word, and that you would impart to this person who I'm sitting next to, Lord. God, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would fill them with the spirit of the living God, that you would baptize them fresh in the Holy Spirit, that you would teach us your word fresh today, Lord, and that you would help us to be faithful to the command 
to make disciples of all nations. We repent of the ways in which, God, we have made this about ourselves. We confess our vanity and we repent of it. And we pray that you would help us ourselves to be able to go out into the world and live as a testimony for you and come into your presence. God, that we would be able to lead others out into the world as a good example and lead them into your presence. And God, that you would help us as you yourself, Jesus, looked at the, 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 the crowd with compassion because you saw them as sheep without a shepherd. God, let us not be guilty of having people in our lives who have no shepherd, but that we ourselves would be a good shepherd as you are to them in the name of Jesus. God bless you, my friends.